Squire Radio, I'm Bo. And I'm John David. JD! Hey, Bo, good afternoon, man. Man, good afternoon to you too, sir. How you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Yeah, it's a good day. It's a good day. It's a little chilly in uh, in Jackson, so we're in my, we're in my long sleeve shirt, yeah. sleeves rolled up. Feels uh, feels good, you know, a little nip in the air, and yeah, it's good pipe smoking weather. Yeah, yeah. it really is. I was sitting on my, um, my, my wife last night. She uh, has a really good friend in Boca Raton, Florida, and they get together about once a month and they drink wine and video chat that's what they do i use that as a, a really good excuse to go sit on the back patio last night and i mean smoke my pipe and smoke some eight-year-old frog morton cellar that was really good and it was yes. actually out of one of my favorite pipes that hadn't smoked in a while and an old sheraton that i've got man drank some white wine and sat there with the dog and it was it was great man <laughs> it's just really good it, it was a good sunday night so uh yeah man doing great doing great what's up what's up with you and uh and the York crew. Yeah, man. Also enjoying a little bit of this uh, slightly cold weather. Actually, it was great. It's like because 80 degrees and sl- like wintertime in Houston. No, no. <laughs> like for two days, it was like it was in the 50 degree area. So wow. we actually, yeah, man, we busted out the uh, Pull out the snow plows. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> the equivalent, right? So uh, we did the we did the fire pit and we uh, roasted up some s'mores and uh, we That's even great. lit up the, the fireplace and enjoyed it for about two seconds. I, I even pulled out, you know, you know that like one real nice winter vest I have like yeah. the one re- like it's <laughs> both so nice and so unique that I own something that nice that of course you know what I'm talking about yeah it, it, it's the one thing that doesn't look like it came from goodwill yeah exactly <laughs> exactly I uh, I got to bust that out this morning to walk the kids to school and then I was in shorts and flip flops to pick them up man that's, yep. what, uh, <laughs> that's what we're dealing with that's awesome man shoot <laughs> yeah listen we're uh, it's a uh, but it's a good time of year it is a great great time of year because we are entering into that holiday season man and of course uh listeners of the show know uh, we announced it a few weeks ago we've got the country squire ring which we have been so yeah. excited to uh to share with folks now the country squire ring man we got, i want to go ahead and take this opportunity to answer a couple of questions about this um because there's been some discussion folks have already started getting their rings in uh though the yeah. feedback has been really really si- so- solid and extremely exciting one of the things though that we have seen people asking questions about sizing now john david yeah did you know your ring size before this? I did not. Yeah. And I actually had to look up a thing online and then get a pipe cleaner, which, which pipe smokers tend oh. to have handy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and wrapped it around my ring finger on my right hand where I don't wear my wedding band and, and measured it that way. But that's uh, that's how I figured it out. <laughs> That's certainly one way to do it, man. There's other ways as well. Of course, our friends at Sylvan Forge Creations does do have a sizing guide that they can yeah. send you. Now, yeah. there's a $5 shipping with that, but by doing it, you also get that $5 credit towards the purchase, so it does kind of balance out. Or, and this is what I did, man, I just rolled over to the local mall and went to the jeweler and asked if they could size me, and they pulled out like a ring of rings, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> slipped them on the fingers, told me which one. That's the size that I uh, I sent you know, in to, uh, to Sylvan Forge, man, and, I, and the ring fits beautifully. It's awesome. I've forgotten about that. I've done that before, too. Yeah. yeah. I, I think years ago when I actually got fitted for my, my wedding band, I did that. There you that. go. Yeah. yeah. I went in there, and yeah, they pull out this big, like, keychain full of rings, and it's, you know, got the ones, and they'll they'll just get you fitted, and, you know, if they don't ask to charge you anything, maybe tip the person five bucks behind the counter. And I don't know what else you're going to, you know, do to support your local uh, jewelry store for, uh, you know, giving you (laughs) your ring size. But anyway, uh, man, something to think about. Yeah, that's great. 
Well, we want to encourage you. There's only 50 of these things, so we want to encourage you to go ahead and head over to countrysquireradio.com. You'll see a big banner right there to go ahead and click and learn more about the Country Squire ring. Yeah. Uh, don't let the sizing uh, uh, trip you up. There's lots of different ways to uh, to figure out what what your ring size is. Uh, so hopefully that'll give you a little bit of help there. But uh, as y'all are getting those in, we love to see those pictures of them. It's uh, it's great to see that folks are enjoying that ring, and we want to give a, a major shout-out to our friends at Sylvan Forge Creations for this amazing Country Squire ring. Yeah. Uh, man, okay, now... It has to be acknowledged because we have got an awesome episode to get into today, but this is kind of interesting because this technically falls as our Halloween episode. You know, I didn't think about that, Bo. Yeah, that's right. You know, to my shame, I did not either. You know, you and I, we, we, (laughs) we can pull the curtains back a little bit and let the people know we're trying to get a little professional back here, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, attempting. Uh, occasionally, we have little fits and starts where we, uh, you know, try to pretend like we know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And so, like, you know, we're projecting out content for the rest of the year. And, of course, yeah. with that, we've got our, you know, our tracking and packing, which is our Thanksgiving episode uh, that we've done, you know, historically throughout the run of the show. We've got a, a number of holiday episodes around the Christmas time, which we're really excited to get to y'all as well. But I, I can't believe this, man, because I love Halloween and I totally forgot <laughs> that this was our <laughs> Halloween episode. But it kind of makes sense. I think it actually kind of works because we are talking about a tortured soul today mm. on Country Squire Radio. Yeah. This, this is going to be a Heroes of the Bowl and we're going to be talking about Vincent Van Gogh, pipe man. smoker and tortured soul. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, that's a that's a... That's a hard way to put it. Uh, I mean, it, it is for someone that was so uh, talented in his lifetime and never realized that, uh, never you know understood his you know worth to society or mm-hmm. his loved ones or any of that kind of thing. And yeah, you know, so th- there is that element of sorrow that kind of goes with it that could bring into the um, the. The, the the topic we certainly will but yeah man Vincent van Gogh uh, you know a pipe smoker uh, one of the most famous uh, artists of the past 200 years and man certainly someone that is worthy of a, of an episode and we've uh, talked about doing for a while and had several requests for as well so so I was gonna start this off with friends squires John David lend me your ear but that's a little <laughs> Seems a little in poor taste. I mean, obviously, we're going to talk about it. Is it too it. soon? Yeah. It, it might be a little, a little, little too soon, at least in the conversation, for sure. But man, before we dive into this, I want to kind of share this quote from Van Gogh, yeah. because there's a lot to unpack about him, and you have to kind of look at him at, from the complexity of a human being that he was. Yeah. And with the, with the tragedy, with kind of the darkness, there's also a lot of, you know, desire for beauty, a desire to do good, and a desire to serve. And also a desire to really illuminate beauty. And I think that that's something that, mm. you know, speaks to a lot of different artists. Mm-hmm. Van Gogh was famous for saying, your profession is not what brings home your weekly paycheck, uh, but your profession is what you were put here on earth to do with such passion and such intensity that it becomes a spiritual, uh, that becomes spiritual in its calling. So wow. that, yeah. 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 You see, you see in that quote, man, we're talking about somebody who has a high value of work and a high value of kind of like a, a, a spiritual faith kind of to some extent reminds me of my grandfather, but only in that way, because 
Well, let, let's just get into it. It stops right there. Yeah, it, it stops right there. All right. So let, let's talk about this dude. All right. So he was born in a small Dutch village. He was uh, his father was a pastor. Yeah. His father's father was a pastor. And as you can might, you know, imagine Vincent Van Gogh had a strong desire to follow in his father's footsteps and his father's father's footsteps. But, I didn't think about that. Just kind of reading about him some, uh, you know, I, I was unaware of that side of his life, that there was this, uh, you know, kind of spiritual lineage that, that led up to his own story. That was interesting. Yeah, absolutely, man. But even even still, though, you know, you, you think about like, okay, you know, a quiet Dutch village and then his father's a pastor and everything else and just kind of this idealistic life for a young man growing up there. But from an early age, man, he had a lot of psychological torment and trauma going on. For one yeah. thing, his older brother died at birth. That event set things in motion that would ultimately, I think, dominate his psyche in many ways from pretty much from the jump. Uh, his mom was unable to really attach to him. Uh, she was kind of almost incapable of loving him. And that was a big, strong feeling he felt on him really, really early on. But he was yeah. a driven dude. Despite kind of that, that depression, he was extremely, extremely smart. Uh, he spoke French, English, German, of course, his native Dutch. Uh, he was somebody who really, really loved languages. But he also loved another thing, John David. And you know what that is? What? The ladies. <laughs> And you know, and you know who the ladies loved? Van Gogh. Not Van Gogh. Not Van Gogh. <laughs> Not Van Gogh. Yeah, this, yeah. this dude. To some man. extent, you know that that uh, that certainly uh, contributes to your you know emotional um, you know well being or the lack thereof uh, as well, right? Yeah. Look, you know, your mom doesn't love you, and then you go into the whole dating world, and well, let's just get into it. Okay. So at 20 years old, all right, he's 20 years old. He uh, is living, at, you know, at this nice place and everything, and he starts to get an eye on the landlord's daughter. Now she has got one of the just hottest names ever. Her name was Ursula. Mm. You know. <laughs> Yeah. What a babe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ursula, man, he was, he was, he was in love with her. He was obsessed with her. Uh, you know, this kind of intense and that, you know, in the intensity that we see from Van Gogh, uh, played into the way that he attempted to pursue her. However, she was not feeling it. Uh, she said that she was secretly engaged to somebody else. Whether or not that's true, who knows? But regardless, she was not feeling him, you know, coming on as hard as he was. He began to stalk her. And, you know, the problem is when you start stalking your landlord's daughter, you find yourself in need of a new place to live pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and that was certainly the case for Van Gogh, man. Uh, yeah. He yeah. gave up, you know, he gave up all of his possessions and everything. And the only thing he really held on to was his Bible. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's interesting because, you know, you and I, we grew up in the Bible Belt, okay? Not, a, not quite the Netherlands, but we grew up in the Bible Belt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a young man here. His mom never loved him. He, he struck out hard with the ladies. He's got no money. He's got no place to live. Uh, he grew up in a, like a, a staunchly like religious household. Yeah, Dutch so, reformed, right? Yeah, Dutch reformed man. So, right? so, so, what what do you think he does? Like, wh where where does he turn? What, what's he gonna do with his life? Preacher. <laughs> He's gonna go to seminary, man. That's exactly right. <laughs> and I mean yep. that with no disrespect to anybody that's in seminary no, or that's, pastors out there. But I do that to troll John absolutely. David a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I, I, I get it, man. You're like, well, you I mean, gosh, you barked up this tree. You've been a you know paralegal and a marketer and a real estate guy and a financial <laughs> advisor, and you know you failed at all that. And so, well, what the hell? I might as well try seminary. And you know, you go there, and before you know it, you're dealing drugs at a local pipe shop. So, <laughs> well, hey, there you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> professional Christian, man. That's what he's I going know, for. Man, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. You know, with his uh, background, of course, with the Christian faith uh, through his family and having that as kind of a kind of a baseline that, you know, was there through a lot of these hard times that he, you know, was basically the only thing he knew to turn to. His mother was emotionally unavailable and the family uh, felt the same way. And yeah, it's just fascinating. You know, you, you don't think of Vincent Van Gogh as having that background. And of course, his uh, that was just the beginning of some of the, the rest of his life there. Yeah. And, you know, just had that as a basis and he studied to be a pastor. Well, or did he? See, here's the thing, man. He had a rough time of it. First, he wanted to go to the School of Theology in Amsterdam, uh, but he really took offense to the fact that they kind of required Latin and teaching and learning Latin. Now, you got to think, you know, on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, you know, if you don't want to learn Latin, just say you don't want to learn Latin. Like, don't, don't make a whole deal of it. Yeah. This was a guy that knew multiple languages. He was extremely brilliant, especially when it came to languages. His offense that he took with Latin was that the poor didn't speak Latin. And so it was driving this wedge between the scriptures and the people that he wanted to minister. And that love of the poor, especially kind of the working person, like that was something that was very, very like core to who Van Gogh was. Really a a core part of his mission, what he saw as his future ministry was going into these extremely impoverished areas and Mm -hmm. ministering to people that that had very little. And, you know, he he had a hard time kind of finding a a group that would take him on as a potential pastor in order to, you know, to sponsor him in order to to get there because they yeah. uh, didn't have a lot of incentive to send missionary types or uh, pastoral workers, you know, into some of these environments, even though, you know, <laughs> looking at it 100 years later, you think, well, isn't that what is, you know, we, we as believers are supposed to do? <laughs> right, it's like that's right. the exact, exact kind of place we're supposed to go. And, you know, he had trouble connecting with the right resources to uh, accept him as a, a potential minister in those um, environments. And, that's it, right. you know, that's that's unfortunate. So. Yeah, the School of Theology in Amsterdam, they wouldn't take him. Evangelical Church of Belgium wouldn't take him. He did eventually find his calling in the, in the coal mines, in the coal mining cities, man. In fact, he was a minister who was very dedicated to understanding the plight of the people that he was called to serve, as you mentioned. Mm. He actually had this nickname. I don't know if you, you saw this, but uh, he was the Christ of the coal mines. Wow. How about that? (laughs) Uh, Which came from the fact that he literally, I mean, like, you know, he gave his home to to, uh, a a woman there. He he was actually sleeping on the floor with the coal miners. Um, But it was this exact Christ-like behavior that actually got him kicked out the church. <laughs> like, just like you were saying, man, like in, in, a, in a, you know, in a modern yeah. context, we look at this like, well, this is exactly what, you know, we kind of envision like the most holy of our ministers doing. Right. And yeah. the church was like, uh, we're kind of trying to keep this like high profile thing going. It's a bad look to have a church, you know, have a minister who's like smothered in coal and sleeping on the floor. We, yeah. you're not really yeah. presenting the image that we're looking for here, Van Gogh. If you could just, you know, stop. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah, it's un- it obviously, you know, we think of it now and you know, we weren't there, so I mean, certainly uh, you know, don't have all the perspective, but at the same time, uh, from all accounts, it sounds just not not handled well from a um, you know, from a the faith standpoint. And so, you know, they they didn't jihaw with that uh concept, you know, that uh going to live amongst the poor, getting dirty, getting, you know, your dirt under your fingernails and working with these folks in their uh biggest time of need, you know, there's church supplies you with the rectory or with the uh you know, a parsonage and you're giving it to the uh, poor lady down the street who's got kids that doesn't have a place to live. And it's like, well, you know, you're just, you're setting up a homeless shelter in this place. We're getting on and on and on. And it's, uh, 
yeah, you know, it's um, you'd, you'd wish that, uh, you know, in some sense that was honored more. Exactly. Well, and, you know, so I know a lot of people are thinking, okay, so, so where does the pipe fit into this? But you have to understand that we're talking about a painter here and we've kind of unloaded a lot of his history that has led him to what will ultimately yeah. lead him into art. And really art is where you see his pipe come into play. And we're going to see that as kind of he still goes through this cyclical nature of torment and despair and temporary comfort. And it, I know our listeners know where the pipe falls into that spectrum, right? <laughs> so, so we're going to see, we're going to see that play out, but just to recap, man. All right. Van Gogh, he's 27 years old. His mom didn't love him. His love, uh, the love of his life rejected him. Uh, the church has just rejected him. He's got no money. He's got no job. So I made the joke before, like, you know, what do you do when all the girls turn you down and you can't figure out, and you, you know, what to do with your life and everything? Oh, you go to seminary. Well, what do you do when the seminary kicks you out, John David? You go to, you go to the pipe shop. <laughs> <laughs> you go True. sell the best tobacco products, right? <laughs> right. No, 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 no. I mean, yes. But of course, you, you become right. an artist. You become yep. an artist. And, uh, yep. and now, don't, don't misunderstand me. His art form was always, in his early, in, in his early works, you know, he was constantly sketching even when he was a minister, you, you know, he was sketching out the people that he saw. He was inspired by a lot of paintings that depicted coal miners in particularly, but those who had been kind of working in kind of these dirtier settings and that sort of thing. And just kind of the desperation that was portrayed in a lot of the, the paintings around him mm-hmm. really inspired mm-hmm. his work early on. A lot of darkness there, you know, and, yes. and so it obviously uh, colored his um, his work uh, a lot. It had that uh, kind of uh, essence to it or just the, the vibrancy of it was a, a, a muted darkness uh, in, in some sense. Uh, you know, and a lot of his subject matter, this is a, an artist that on the side, you know, as he's doing this, uh, you know, he wasn't able to pay for uh, models to come in to, uh, you know, model for him. And so he was just kind of modeling who was around him. You know, right. him and his painter buddies were painting each other. That's why there's a lot of self-portraits of Van Gogh because, uh, you know, he didn't really have anyone else to paint, you know, and a lot of his painting uh, subjects were these, uh, you know, kind of destitute folks that were struggling to make ends meet and all this. And it just had that vibe to it. But you got to think about who he was, right? Like he was continuing, like he, he had this ministry that he really wanted to speak to the dignity of kind of the lowly of who was kind of seen as the lowly. And that was really kind of what was what was his art was about. It was really kind of that the desire to preach to the dignity of the worker and the beauty of nature around him as well, which is mm. you know the other kind of side of his his artwork. Um, but so he turns to his brother, man. He says like, "Hey, can we get this whole setup going on?" His brother's name Theo. He's like, "Theo, here's the deal. I want to uh, do these paintings." I don't know business clearly because I've lost every single job and nobody wants to hire me and everything. And even the church has turned me down, but you take my paintings, you go and sell them, get me a cut of those. And, uh, and also, you know, send me money every single month for me to live. And, uh, Theo, he loves his brother. He's like, absolutely, man, I've got you. You're good. Uh, let's make sure that the family is looking out for each other. At the same time, Van Gogh starts looking at the family in a different kind of way. Cause along comes cousin Kate. Oh Yeah. Cousin Kate, she's she's, she's just, no Ursula, but uh, she's no, you know she's no Ursula, but her husband it just died, so she's back on the market. And you know it is the late eighteen hundreds, and you know it, it, your first cousin being your first cousin, that's uh yeah. man, it's a it's a eligible um eligible bachelorette, yeah. All right, so you know Van Gogh, he goes to his uh, opening move night at the Roxbury, full on stalker mode, and she shuts him down hard, man, <laughs> shuts him down hard. She actually flees town, goes to her family in Amsterdam, and he actually goes to her house. 
And I think this speaks to the level of like, honestly, like mental state of Van Gogh and then also yeah, just the sure. intensity of Van Gogh. It was he an goes, intensity. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Very much so. He goes to her house. He, he holds his hand over the flame of an open lamp. You know, like the, the oil lamp type yeah, situation. Like a get right, right. He's holding his hand over this flame and will not remove it until he's able to speak to her. Yeah. And uh, he actually wrote uh, his brother's like, I, I think I think her family blew out the lamp. <laughs> <laughs> so he was kicked out. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. I, I oh, say man. this, man, because you need to understand where his love life was to end up where he ended up. And that is with the whole yeah. third times the charm situation. Right. Along comes, I think, Clanissa or Clasina, I want to say her name is. Along comes the third lady. He likes to call her Scene. Scene, or Sign, again, you know, Dutch, so if I'm messing this up, that's, that's on me. She was an alcoholic prostitute with a four-year-old daughter and another child yeah. on the way. But they were able to connect. And he said of her that while others may find her disgusting, while she may be disgusting to others, in my eyes, she is beautiful. Mm. And there's a lot of different ways you can kind of look at their story from that standpoint. But I do think that there is something beautiful in that statement, right? Like Sin actually became one of not just his mistress, but also his model. And so we've actually yeah. seen her in a lot of a lot of his works from that standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 interesting uh, how that works. But uh, yeah, she it kind of really encapsulated and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, his work up to that point. And so uh, was in some ways perfect for that. Yeah. Perfect. So. (laughs) (laughs) Until she wasn't. (laughs) Well, so during their time together, Van Gogh contracted a lot of STIs, got sick. She decided to go back to the work that she knew. See, we're trying to keep things, you know, family friendly here on Country Square. Yeah, no, that's right. And it it wasn't exactly a happy situation. Van Gogh's family's like, hey, you really need to like, you know, get out of this. And Van Gogh's like, I don't want to get out of this. And they're like, yeah, but like, we're going to stop sending you money every month. And then Van Gogh's like, okay, peace out. I'm a, I'm a go, uh, you know, thanks for the STIs and I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll just roll on out of here. Uh, <laughs> oh man. Trying yeah. to have fun with a really heavy subject. I don't know. Maybe I'm not tortured, trying to be- <laughs> tortured soul though. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's true. It's, uh, you know, something where, um, all the twists and turns, uh, led to, to deeper and, uh, more murky places that, uh, you know, define a lot of, uh, a lot of his, a uh, lot of his life and experience. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is he did find a lot of joy in her and her children as well. Like for a time, for a brief moment in his history, he had kind of this makeshift, albeit very kind of toxic family situation. Yeah. Um, and from that point on, he never really desired it the same way. Although his artwork would kind of depict people that were close to him and the family life that he didn't necessarily have. And it was always Mm -hmm. this question of whether or not he actually wanted it. He did have family though. His brother played probably one of the most influential roles in his life outside of the other painters around him. But even then they came onto the scene because of the relationship with his brother in 1885, man, he began his work on the potato eaters. Have you seen this painting? No. uh Okay, so this is actually, I think it's one of his first like major works, though. Is that right? That's right. It's got kind of this hunched over group of people. It's super dark. They're all mm-hmm. eating potatoes, as the name suggests. And one of the things about it is it's kind of this combination of like hands and dirt and food and people and just more specifically, like yeah. these people all bound up into it. And I think that kind of speaks to, you know, getting back to that desire of what he saw in humanity, wanting to kind of showcase humanity, mm-hmm. not as overly beautiful but is dignified and that they were consuming the work of their hands and i think 
you know, the potato eaters really kind of resonated eventually with people for that reason. But hmm. back then, nobody wanted it, man. It was way too dark. It was like yeah. that episode of Game of Thrones where nobody could see what was going on. And <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of his style, to be honest. Yep. All right, so he goes to Paris. He's like, all right, he's writing his brother in Paris saying like, hey, I'm, right, I'm making all these paintings. They're super dope. They're awesome. Like, they're gonna sell like hotcakes. And Theo is like, uh, no, this is not happening at all. Uh, nobody's actually buying this because right now, what was it? The uh, impressionist is the whole, it's, it's like the new hotness. And Van Gogh's like, oh, really? This is, this is the new hotness? And Theo's like, actually, you know what? It's not, but I think it's going to be. So I'm getting all these impressionists, like artists together. And we're going to like, you know, kind of create this whole impressionist movement. And it's going to be super cool. Van Gogh's like, oh, Theo, I got to come over. This is awesome. This is all happening. Paris is where I've got to be. And he writes that to Theo about 40 different times. And 40 different times, Theo writes back to him like, yeah, Paris is great. No invite. <laughs> wow, <laughs> like, like, yeah. Not inviting him there at all. Finally, yeah. Van Gogh pops up anywhere. He's like, hey, Theo, I'm here. You pick me up at the airport. Or rather, the, uh, the, the train <laughs> station, as it were. <laughs> and so here is where we really get the Van Gogh that we know. This is where Van Gogh mm-hmm. really kind of connects with what would be his people. Uh, they all hated him. Because Van Gogh was a jerk. He was uh, kind of lacked self-awareness. He was very argumentative. He was a big personality. And he was very passionate about his work ethic and also his beliefs. And, you know, you kind of mix that up with like, you know, Paris-based like Monet and like, you know, uh, uh, Pissarro and, you know. These folks are bright and cheerful and outgoing and uh, seductive and all this kind of stuff. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's not, he's just, uh, kind of, kind of crotchety and, and bitter and, um, and, uh, and has, has had a, has had a hard life. Yeah. It's so wild though. Cause like he's inspired by all these people at the same time. Like he's, he's been painting in the dark, so to speak. And you've got kind of these impressionists that are all like bringing light into, you know, their works. And it becomes this big kind of influence for him. I mean, Van Gogh is known for the way that he really kind of almost like forces light into paintings and really just, you know, the swirls of something like Starry Night is just something that is so iconic because you see in which like light is almost like warping, pulling you in, like the starlight itself is pulling you in. And all of that kind of take are, are what we kind of see as kind of the quote unquote traditional Van Gogh. He's got a lot of different styles. But a lot of those iconic paintings really come with a lot of the inspiration specifically on how Impressionists were using light. But all right, so you have all these Impressionists, right? They're all chilling. They're all drinking wine. They're all trying to have a good time. Van Gogh's like rolling in. He's like making everybody mad. And uh, his brother's trying to cover for him. Like, no, he's, he's really a sweet guy if you get to know him. He's like a huggable raptor. Like, give him a chance. Like, he's, <laughs> he's a good guy. And, uh, and they're like, no, man, we don't, we, you know, this, this guy's crazy. Except for one dude, which is uh, Gugan. Okay, I think I'm pronouncing that correct. So if I'm not, my apologies to the Gugan family. Uh, <laughs> Gugan and Van Gogh connect because they have the love of a certain green beverage. Absinthe. Absinthe. Yes. Now, John David, have you had absinthe? I never have. First of all, it's not something that is particularly available. I also heard it kind of makes you a little crazy, right? <laughs> I mean, it was illegal for a time for that reason. Yeah, you can kind of hallucinate if you drink a lot of it. Um, that, that, that That's how it was back in the day. I have found, especially when I was living in Jackson, absinthe can be a little difficult to get a hold of. We do have a bottle here at the York House. 
that I use specifically and almost exclusively for Sazeracs. It's a it's a critical ingredient in the Sazerac cocktail, uh, yeah. which of course is a, a New Orleans based uh, cocktail, and and it's kind of a licoricey type of flavor mm-hmm. to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And really what we do with it is we spray, I've got like a spray bottle. I fill it with absinthe and I spray a glass and, you know, kind of roll, roll it around in that, that capacity. Interesting. Yeah. I have not drinking it. I'm not going to drink it because (laughs) it can make you crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I do think they probably have put a little more uh, quality control into the stuff that they produce that you can buy at a package store uh, nowadays. But yeah, you know, of course, historically, that's uh, what they said, right? Is that, uh, you know, folks that uh, drink it, it's, uh, you know, it has this addictive quality to it that eventually kind of makes you go a little nuts. Little crazy man, Gugan and uh, and Van Gogh man, they were enjoying their absinthe together. But the absinthe, you know, if there are vices that can be somewhat healing, <laughs> like a, like a, a respite, if you will, <laughs> there are others that can be torturing. And absinthe was certainly something that kind of began a bit of a process for him. Yeah. During that time, he was also inspired by a lot of works coming out of Jap- uh, Japan and kind of the Japanese technique. Uh, he was really excited to kind of dive more into that, so he ended up leaving Paris and going to southern France where it was said that the sunlight was very similar to the sunlight that the Japanese painters actually used. You know, you're thinking about like most of these painters are specifically painting during the day for that exact reason. They want to get the most out of their color and get that natural light kind of helping them do that. Um, So he's, he now is combining these, you know, what he took from the impressionistic group and this kind of like Japanese art form. And he's really kind of molding it this into this East meets West Van Gogh-ness, I guess, for lack of a better Mm. term. Man, he's loving the South of France. Everything's going great. It's just nothing but like painting all the time and drinking absinthe and and chewing on his paints, his lead paints. Yep. And getting hits of turpentine. Yep. And the madness begins. Now, arguably, the madness was always there. We just painted the picture of a man who was fairly tortured. Right. Yeah. Like even sure. before all of this kind of gets mixed into the, uh, the categories, but it's a, it's a powder keg waiting to explode, you know? And then you, so you've got him, uh, you know, kind of hitting the bottle pretty hard and, yes. um, and, and you alluded to it as well. Just, uh, he would often, uh, lick the ends of his brushes to moisten them, uh, <laughs> with, you know, and, and they weren't really aware of the, uh, you know, dangers of lead based paint. And, and so, uh, the amount of that kind of stuff that he consumed was just, you know, comparatively off the charts. And so a lot of this just, you know, snowballed into into what became so much of his uh, his story. Yeah, I mean at this stage in the game, he had kind of given up all like any all the money that was coming in from Theo, he was just spending it on his his really materials, his paints that he was also to some extent consuming un- unintentionally maybe or maybe kind of intentionally and really just living off of bread, coffee and absinthe. That was his diet for a yeah. good stretch of time. So his brother reaches out to him, says like, hey, you're not well. I'm hearing things coming from the southern French town that uh, are disturbing to me. I've reached out to your boy Gugan. Even he thinks you should stop drinking absinthe. And you know, if Gugan is saying you got to stop drinking absinthe, <laughs> you really got to cut it down. You got to let it go. Yeah. So Gugan, like this dude is a friend, man. He goes down to southern France and he's like, hey, I'm going to live with you for a little while. We're going to start getting you clean. And so he, they, you know, he brings in flowers. They start painting flowers. And this, if I'm not mistaken, is the first time we start seeing Van Gogh depicted with the pipe in this pictures and it starts popping Mm. up in some of his art form. Mm. And it's specifically in these moments of light breaking into a very darkened soul. And man, Mm. 
Mm, mm. If that doesn't speak to, I think, what the pipe can be for people. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't that resonate with us, right? Yeah, I mean, you've right. got this, uh, you know, this tortured soul that uh, is in need of uh, of a respite that can actually give, uh, you know, give some some vibrancy to the to a life. And, uh, and there it is. There's the pipe. <laughs> and there it is, man. So we start seeing those kind of pop up in de- depictions of Van Gogh, uh, also kind of in some of his, like, you know, next to flowers. I think there's one in particular where his pipe is, is laid next to it. And it's, it's not a critical feature. Like it's not, it's never the subject of any of his paintings, but it's there to kind of communicate something. You know, there's a, there's a choice that all artists make whenever they're doing a portrait of someone or a self portrait. And they're kind of choosing like a softer angle or they're choosing kind of to hit them with hard mm-hmm. light. And so I think mm-hmm. that there is something to be said for the fact that the pipe is intentionally included in some of these paintings. It's not a photo. This was a choice. You know, this wasn't capturing a moment. This yeah. was specifically e- eager to depict something. So we see kind of this light breaking through for a moment when Gugan uh, is trying to like, you know, break, break through to his friend. They're living together. They're driving each other crazy. It's not working out very well. You've got to like give Gugan props, right? Like he is really trying. I mean, he's got this buddy of his, nobody else appreciated him. Like none of their friend groups really saw the value in him, but he was like, you know what? No, you've got amazing talent and you'll drink absinthe with me. And like, you know, (laughs) I want you, you know, we're going to, we're going to pull through this. Things start getting tense, man. Absinthe, (laughs) absinthe is a hell of a drug. (laughs) I don't know what to say. And, and turpentine, lead-based paint. Right. Turpentine and lead-based paint don't help either. <laughs> and so you've got you've got this kind of cocktail of things going on, and this is where things start to crescendo, where after a particularly bad argument, Gugan leaves to go take a walk. Van Gogh pursues him. In mm. the street, mm. Gugan turns around. Van Gogh's standing there holding a razor. Yes, that razor. That, they the, cut, the one, right? The fateful razor that later he would use to cut off his ear. Mm. They have kind of this standoff. Vincent runs away. Gugan's like, I'm going to get a new place to live. And Vincent Van Gogh famously cuts off his ear, uh, gives it to a, a, a woman working at a brothel, says, you know, take care of this. Because uh, you know? <laughs> clearly he did not. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, was found by the authorities and, and brought into uh, to the hospital. He yeah. was 35 years old. Mm. Mm. He was 35 years old when he did this, which is crazy because, you know, you yeah. hear when you're growing up as a kid, like stories about Van Gogh and like you see him as kind of this old dude. You really and he's do. younger than us, man. Yeah, I know. I, I know. And 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 yet it, it kind of, you know, once you know that and then you kind of start comparing it to, you know, your, the stages in life where you've struggled the most, yes. it kind of makes sense. You know, I mean, it, it, it really is it, the crucible of uh, someone's, uh, you know, late teens, 20s, early 30s. Um, and then you throw in all this, uh, you know, this uh, terrible uh, rotten soup that he's been uh, fed here of, uh, you know, a, a unloving family and an abusive church and, um, you know, just uh, disease and, <laughs> um, you know, all this uh, emotional turmoil. And, um, and and yeah, man, it's just it's a miracle that uh, he was courageous enough to, to do um, to do as much as he did, you know. Um, yeah. And, his, and yeah, he, yeah. he had it. He had it tough. He really did. And and there, you know, towards the end, of course, at, you know, he's at age 35 now, and it, this made sense to him. And it wasn't, uh, you know, healthy or right, but gosh, the, the poor guy just, uh, he, he, you know, things weren't adding up. And, and you can 
kind of see why if you if you peel back the layers a little bit and look at his life. It's it's really something. And sadly, this was not the lowest part of his life either, yeah, which, yeah. which should have been certainly was not. You know, he was taken to the hospital. He's bandaged up. He's starting to get healthy, you know, trying to, to get himself fixed and everything. And once again, bandaged with his ear, we start seeing a return of the pipe in his artistry and his pictures. Um, you know, he's just been through this extreme experience, right? <laughs> like yeah, this extreme yeah. mental breakdown, uh, this literally like his body has just experienced something extreme. And there's this desire once again to really kind of come back to nature, come back to peace and really again, pour into those images that really inspired him to begin with, like talking mm. about the dignity of humanity at its, at its you know lowest levels and the beauty of nature all around him. And again, we see the, the pipe kind of playing a role into the way, especially that he depicts himself. He would paint during the day. He actually received mental treatments at night. People sometimes critique him saying that you could see the madness in his paintings I don't know that that's fair. Uh, the way that I've kind of read about him, it looks as though more like the painting was really kind of a respite for him. It wasn't his madness like on full display. It was his place of peace. And the madness kind of came when he wasn't painting. And so, you know, I do think that there's there's kind of a, a way in which we maybe need to reframe how we actually look at his paintings overall. He was declared a public danger to the town because, you know, he crazy. <laughs> And, uh, and so they decided that instead of like going to the treatment center at night and, uh, painting during the day, he should just paint at the treatment center and just kind of stay there. Uh, eventually Theo does get him and he brings him back and, uh, you know, they, they kind of get him healthy and, and, you know, gets him to a place where he's able to live on his own again. And things seem like they're going well for a very brief time uh, until Theo tells him like, Hey, you know, I've gotten married, I've got kids. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to keep you you know, going, man. But at the same time, I need to be kind of conservative with my, my funds here. I've been literally financing you for over a decade at this point. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, and there's this kind of place that Vincent finds himself where, you know, all of his friends have kind of grown up, had their families, had their kids, you know, as you mentioned, as we've already mentioned, he's got so much kind of baggage in his personal history. He's kind of gone through this extreme place and he just kind of gets to a point where he's like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. And so one morning, July 27th, 1890, uh, he goes out to paint, you know, the nature around him as he often mm. did. He yeah. was acting a little off, but that was normal for him. No one happened to know that he was carrying a gun with him. He goes out there, man, and he attempts to take his own life. He shoots himself in the chest. Actually, he fails at this. He misses his heart. And so he finds himself dying on the ground, or rather he is found dying on the ground, bleeding out. And is brought back to, you know, brought back to the hospital and the hospital writes out to his brother, Theo. He's like, Hey, your brother tried to kill himself. We don't think he's going to make it. And so yeah. Theo rushes to his brother's bedside, not knowing if he's going to find him alive or dead. And to his kind of shock, he finds him there alive, smoking his pipe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's sitting up in bed with his pipe. Yep. Sitting up in bed with his pipe. Again, this extreme like, you know, depression, 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 extreme self-destruction. Yeah. And then this moment of respite. This is the cycle of what this guy's kind of adult life has been. And every mm. single time you yeah. see him in that kind of moment of respite, that's when the pipe comes out. He does, of course, die a few days later in his brother's arms, you know, thus comes to a tragic end. Now, during his life, man, he was not nearly as successful as he has been, you know, after the fact. He painted over uh, 700 canvases. I think he only sold... I want to say I only sold one in his lifetime, but I could be wrong, wrong on that. The amazing thing is Theo, who played such a massive role in his life, also died six months later. And so it was really felt to Theo's, uh, his widow, 
who took on the kind of the ownership of cataloging all of Van Gogh's paintings. <laughs> and man, some of the stories that she like, like had about where these, like where she was able to find some of these. Cause you know, Van Gogh was like painting like a, you know, well, like a madman. Yeah. And, and so he, he was giving away these paintings as well. Uh, there was one instance where she actually found some of his paintings in a local pub that they were using for target practice. Wow. These are original Van Goghs. They're, they're using for target practice at this pub, right? At the time, another one of the many doctors that Van Gogh had, he had given one a portrait that he had painted of him. And that guy had given it to his mom. And his mom said, this is terrible. And so she actually used it to patch up her chicken coop. <laughs> original Van Gogh patching up a chicken coop. In a French chicken coop somewhere. Yeah, because yeah. the mom is like, this, this doesn't even look like my son. And like, oh, that's <laughs> just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, that you crazy? know these these priceless, uh, timeless works that, uh, of course, he um, never got to experience the the success of. Uh, you know, were were literally in the in the giveaway pile or in the rubbish pile. You know, um, crazy. only to be cataloged by um, you know the the widow after the fact, and uh, and, and you know eventually going uh, her going throughout some of his uh, former homes in Europe and trying to uh, go into the communities there, trying to find these artwork, uh, these pieces, uh, as she's starting to realize that they're uh, you know have some value and that kind of thing, and. Um, having some success, but uh, I mean, who knows where some of those things wound up if one was in a chicken coop, you know? <laughs> Isn't just, that crazy? Just you know, amazing. Yeah, yeah. His mom, his mom got on up there in age. She did live to see his success recognized, which honestly, just for me, frankly, makes me mad because <laughs> she was such yeah. a source of torture yeah. for him. She also yeah. tossed several of his paintings as well because she didn't appreciate them. And, and mm-hmm. it's just, it's the, it's, it's a frustrating you have a, a very tragic individual who uh, really alienated himself from a lot of his peers was absolutely tormented by his inner demons. And even the people that loved him, like he, he just he could not, not push them away. I mean, like yeah. you really look at it and I mean, gone really went above and beyond in terms of like, you know, his life story to really try to be there for him. Yeah. And then his brother really just took ownership of, of, of him in a, in a pretty massive way. And uh, yeah, now we we now have all of this beautiful artwork to enjoy. And man, it does kind of make you wonder if he had put down the absinthe and put down the turpentine and maybe picked up his pipe a little bit more, maybe yeah. we'd have double the work from Van Gogh, yeah. um, you know, with yeah. a, in a, in a much healthier mindset. So yeah, yeah Vincent think, Van Gogh. No, that, that's right, man. Well, well done. And, and such a, such a, fascinating character you know obviously in the human story van gogh there's a sense of of justice that he didn't get to uh, experience that um, you know there's that there's that terrible uh, tragedy of of the person that uh, has been dealt a bad hand but then doesn't also doesn't help uh, himself uh, along the way and uh, you know folks are trying to help him only to get you know bitten by on the hand you know that's trying to feed him and all this kind of stuff it's like you think about the dog that's at the pound that's been abused <laughs> right, and right. you know it's like well no one adopts that dog because he's kind of a mess but well poor dog he didn't you know he didn't he didn't make himself that way but he's sure not helping himself get out of here kind of thing and it's just right. it's just sad it's just it's it, there's a there's a tragedy to it that you know our human uh, story you know doesn't bring any real resolution to other than the fact that a hundred years later his uh, you know paintings are uh, are, are literally 
priceless, you know, li- literally. And so it's hard. It, it, it's hard. It, it's it's hard to study. It's hard to think about. There's no resolution that makes it palatable. But, you know, at the same time, we're left with the greatest Western works of art in yeah. uh, in in the last, you know, thousand years. And um, Vincent Van Gogh, pipe smoker. Yeah. All right. So I'm curious. So, I mean, like, you know, we've, we've just talked about a tortured soul, which ended up being mildly appropriate, I suppose, for, for a Halloween episode to some extent. But, you know, it did get me thinking about pipe smoking in France in the 1800s. I mean, clay pipes, right? Like, you gotta assume they were smoking clay pipes. Yeah, I would think so. I, I would think so. One one thing that they did not have in in France, though, in the middle 1800s, you know, was a homegrown company that that specialized in corn cob pipes, but then also sold clay pipes. You know, I mean, that's just something they didn't really have. Why, you not happen to be talking about our friends at Missouri Meerschaum, are you? I am. I am, my friend. And uh, based in Washington, Missouri, right in America's heartland, <laughs> our friends at Missouri Meerschaum, of course, are uh, proud to sponsor this show every single week. And, uh, man, they uh, have done a great job over 150 years of making the world's finest corncob pipes. But also with their merger of uh, Old Dominion Pipe Company, they've uh, started to uh, sell the beautiful clay pipes uh, that, that bear Old Dominion's name as well. So uh, check it out. You can go to corncobpipe.com. There's a couple of varieties that uh, you can pick from there, the uh, Jamestown and the Williamsburg clay pipes. And uh, you can even buy a combined set that has that and and also a corncob pipe and a hardwood pipe as well. Uh, handsome pieces. These are great tasting pipes and a nice compact size and uh, something that would make a good gift too. So check it out. There you go. And if you happen to get one this week, be sure to uh, enjoy it and uh, take yourself a picture of yourself doing so. It's a great way to let the good folks at Missouri Mearsham know we appreciate them for sponsoring the show. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Pipe question of the week. Question of the week comes in from Joe D. Not not Jody. Wait, I've already made that joke. Jody, hooking us up with some more questions. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Thanks, Jody. We're thankful for you. Uh, Jody's right in said, about how often should I be tamping? Ooh, great question. I tend to yeah. do it when I feel the draw getting a little too easy and tend to ta- uh, tap rather than press. I don't know if I'm doing it right, but I usually get through even a large bowl on two to three lights total. Should I be letting it go out more? And again, that is from Joe D. Some good, this is some good one-on-one stuff right here. Joe D, it sounds like you're doing it exactly right. It's, it sounds like your, uh, your form is, uh, is very much correct. So, you know, I tend to, you know, it, there, there's the problem. If you tamp your pipe too often, you will put it out. You need to give the tobacco time to, uh, to expand, to, uh, curl up, to create some room to breathe. But, you know, the point is once you start uh, feeling that draw get a little bit, bit too easy, maybe the smoke is starting to, uh, the smoke production is diminishing some, the, you know, smoke, uh, you know, quality is, uh, getting more wispy or, or um, you know, just strained, uh, then that that's the time to to tamp your pipe. Yeah, and and, and I think you say uh, you uh, tend to tap rather than press, and I, I think that's good. A lot of folks, that's why they buy a, a heavy tamper. They'll buy a, a kind of a weighty, uh, substantial tamper because what they'll do is they'll just let the weight of the tamper itself uh, kind of drop onto the tobacco. And so, uh, you know, you're dropping the tamper onto the tobacco and just kind of letting 
it uh, let it tap the top of the ash. So anyway, um, yeah, I think you're I think you're doing great. Uh, but Bo, you just got a great smirk on your face, man. I, I just I gotta ask, like, what what are you what are you smiling about? I was, I was like, that's the time. I feel like T A M P I N G T O P I P E. I don't know why I just had that like in my. <laughs> you are so ridiculous. Oh man, no great Joe question. D, great, great question, man. I think you're, I think you're uh, spot on, my friend. Yeah, uh, you know, you can definitely uh, tamp your pipe too often or too hard, and some people prefer to let it go out more often, and which requires more relights. I, it sounds like if you're only relighting it. Uh, you know, if you're only lighting it uh, two or three times throughout an entire large bowl, um, that's that's pretty optimal, man. You've, you've probably got it dialed in. Great question. Hey, if you've got a pipe question for us, be sure to send it into the show at show at countrysquireradio.com. Again, that is show at countrysquireradio.com. Your thoughts, your comments, listener feedback. Listener feedback. All right, man, this listener feedback is coming in from Nathan Merton. Uh, and this is about uh, Rustica. We had an episode a couple weeks back um, yeah. where yeah, we talked about Rustica. What, what did Nathan uh, have to say here? Yeah. Hey, brothers, I just ordered some of the 2021 uh, Rustica from the store. Uh, the 2020 blend is mighty good. Uh, the difficulty I have with it is keeping it lit. That tobacco just doesn't want to stay going for me. Uh, so if you have any recommendations on that, I'd love to hear it. Uh, I've left it out, rubbed out for an hour or so, uh, and packed it well, uh, but it just gives me fits. Now, in terms of my success with the blend, it is when I've mixed it with others. I call this my Melkor blend, uh, Lord of the Rings reference to Sauron's master. It is one flake of Rustica for every three flakes of Old Dark Fired and three flakes of H.H. Latakia. And that just sounds like you need to take Advil after that, Nathan, (laughs) because that's a strong blend. Oh, it's like yeah it's just a mixture of 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 pepper and more pepper and then more and then gasoline <laughs> <laughs> anyway going back to uh, nathan's uh, letter here he says uh, i've rubbed it all out and then vacuum sealed it in a food saver bab- bag to help mimic a light press then to mimic the heat i've left it in my summertime garage for 30 days and upon opening it it comes out looking like beef jerky smelling fantastic and tasting glorious i highly recommend this mix to anyone wanting to get a little extra kick out of your old dark fire here is a little link to my youtube channel where i'm pulling uh, it out of the vacuum bag he provides the link uh, anyways thanks for the show as usual it is great to listen to week in and week out blessings to you both and your families grace and peace pastor nathan nathan merton man i just i, I gotta give you props pastor nate i Man, it, you know, if, if you got old dark fired and you want to make it stronger, so you're mixing it with this Rustica and HH Latakia, and I, man, that's just um, that's impressive. I, I, I don't know, man. That, that's that's really impressive. You know, I mean, like, hey, that's on the. Sometimes you want to push yourself a little bit, right? I don't have it. I wouldn't have that in me. I mean, I just, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I hear that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know. That that's that's intense. <laughs> it kind of reminds. Oh, sorry. So last night, my wife and I, we were having uh, you know a lot a lot of evenings. We kind of close out the night with a little cocktail and everything. And I, I was trying something new, and I made this cocktail called an old pepper. You ever had an old pepper? No, I've never even heard of that. So it's kind of like if I compared it to anything, 
and it's really like an unfair comparison, but it'd be kind of like a Bloody Mary, but it's really not like a Bloody Mary. Okay. It's, it's hot sauce, which is great. Anyway, I'm blanking on which hot sauce we used, but it, you use, you know, Texas like, Pete, Louisiana, Crystal. No, 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 no. It was, it was like a, a, a Sriracha. Like, not Sriracha. You know what? It doesn't matter. Point is hot sauce. All right. we, had, <laughs> we had the hot sauce, lemon juice, fresh squeezed lemon juice, simple syrup, bourbon and Worcestershire. And you, you garnish with cracked pepper on top of it. Oh, that sounds terrible. It's fantastic. I loved it. My wife hated it, but I thought it, was so, <laughs> it was so good until that last sip because that's when like all the like cracked peppercorn had like all like kind of congealed. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you want to like push it a little bit, try something a little different. Nothing wrong that's with the that. bottom of the the glass where you're like, hey, I'll I'll give you I'll give you fifty cents if you eat that. <laughs> yeah, I I, I would I'd spit the fifty cents back up. Almost that's did. Impressive. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's good. <laughs> well, great. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that, Pastor Nathan. And uh, yeah, always always kind of fun. Like you know, if if y'all are uh, you know mixing some different uh, blends on your own, let us know yeah. what uh, what y'all are doing and what the technique is. And you know, if uh, <laughs> I think I think actually you you created something that even scares John David. That is something to be proud of, Pastor. I I'm just saying. I got. I mean, I would smoke something like that, but I got kids, <laughs> you know, good stuff, man. All right. Well, Hey, we want to encourage everybody to uh, keep up with the show throughout the week. You can follow us on the Twitter at Squire radio. You can follow John David at John David Cole at underscore country Squire is the shop's handle and all that information and more can be found at country Squire as well as where you can go to get your country Squire radio ring. Again, we only have 50 of those uh, at the top of the show. We went through a bunch of different ways to figure out what your ring size is. Uh, so <laughs> make sure you go ahead and get that done quickly so that you can uh, get your ring while they still last. All right, man, Van Gogh. Van Gogh, man, had a great, uh, great time learning about him and, uh, studying up on him. And, uh, of course, someone that, uh, uh, was tragic, but also uh, also a pipe smoker and, and and one of the most influential artisans of uh, of the past several hundred years. And so, yeah. worth a look. And uh, glad we did. Glad we did. Well, I think it's that time, that time to make like a one-eared artist and Van Gogh. <laughs> Let's go have a day. See your brother. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.